spend four Sundays on the life of Christ. Then in the new year, we'll go back to uh, the book of Exodus. Not more to cover there. But this is December, the birth of our Lord, so we need to spend some time looking at his life on earth. All right, so let's pray as we start our class this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would help us to honor him this month. Pray for your blessings on today's uh, lessons and bless all those who are being taught today in different classes. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are ten gigantic statues in this world. Many are statues to honors of a religion or in the case of the ten artists in the world, nine of them, I should say eight of them, are of Buddhas in China and Japan. Now, when I say giant statues, I mean from 298 feet tall to 420 feet tall. Now, that's gigantic. And so eight of the ten largest statues in the world are in the east, in China and Japan, one in Indonesia, one in Thailand. And uh, what does the Christian have to remember uh, someone who has done something great in this world. All of these Buddha statues are about <clears throat> generations to come to not forget what the Buddha has done. And so what does the Christian have to remember what Jesus has done? Do we have a statue in Jerusalem, in Israel? I don't think so. Uh, that would be very contrary to how the Jews think about thou uh, shalt not make any great images, things like that. And so what does the Christian have to remember in generations upon generations about who Jesus was and what he did. What do we have? We really have nothing physical and visible made out of steel, mortar, brick, stone. What do we have? We don't have anything gigantic like that, nothing over 300 feet tall. What do we have? Well, it's right in your lap, isn't it? It's right in your lap, it's the Bible. Now look at John chapter 20, verse number 31, to begin, as I talk about the life of Christ, which would be his life on earth. Some preliminary remarks, John 20, 31, is a very key scripture about Jesus Christ and his life on earth. John the Apostle writes this, John 20, verse number 31, and I have plenty of verses to cover, and probably the best thing is just write them down. And so John 20, 31 says, but these are written... Here's the reason why I wrote my Gospel of John. But these are written, and you can say that here's the reason why the Bible is written. But John says, but these are written, what I wrote, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That is the stated purpose of why John wrote the book of John. Many statements in John also bear that out, but this is the key verse, as we would say, about why John wrote his gospel. So, uh, as I begin uh, one of four lessons on the life of Christ, um, we have to talk about briefly about his pre-existence. Pre-existence means he was always in eternity. Uh, he is the eternal Son of God. John 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, Jesus Christ is called the capital W-O-R-D. Now, Christians refer to the Bible as open up the Word. Let's study the Word. Well, uh, we know what that means. The Word is reference to the Word of God. But the Word, the capital W, the Word, is about Jesus Christ is the Word of God. 
And Hebrews 1, 5 through 8 tells us that he is eternal. Now that is to emphasize, as I introduced the lesson, that Jesus was not created in eternity. Uh, he did not become the Son of God when he became in the flesh, when he was incarnated. He was always the Son of God in eternity. He's not a smaller God, a lesser God, uh, a less powerful God than God the Father. Uh, as God is eternal, the Son of God is also eternal. And so that's very important to understand. Now look at John chapter 8, verse number 58. A key verse here about the eternal nature of God or Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 8, verse number 58. Uh, these verses are very basic to the Christian's understanding of the doctrine of Christ, but let's look at this verse, John 8, 58. Begin at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. That was a statement that would get him eventually crucified. I am. So he is saying that he claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the eternal Son of God. And that statement, Before Abraham was, I am. Of course, that is to refer to his eternal nature. So uh, in eternity, his pre-existence, he was always the Son of God. Uh, Christ in the Old Testament... Uh, we see plenty of typology of Christ in the Old Testament and uh, shadows for looking forward to when Christ would come in the flesh. Talk about that when we come back to Exodus because a lot of typologies of Christ in the book of Exodus, so we'll just skip over that one. But uh, just to let you know, Luke 2 27, Luke 24 27, when Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says this about what he said beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Okay, so he was saying the Old Testament contains me. Predictions foreshadows about me. Isaiah 7, 14, Old Testament passage about Christmas, of course. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And that's about Jesus Christ. Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting. And so those are three main verses about the, the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament to come. And so, in fact, when you think about um, what do we have as Christians to remind us and to remind generations about who Jesus Christ was and what he did, we have mainly in the New Testament four writers, four men who wrote as eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, and they are sources first-hand source material of how we can remember who Jesus Christ was. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, briefly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew writes to show Jesus is the king of the Jews. Emphasis on Matthew's words are about the Messiah to come from the right lineage. He is qualified. He's identified with uh, Abraham and so on. Uh, he goes back to uh, how he is in the line and he is the one that fulfills Old Testament expectations of the perfect king.
king for Israel. All right, that's the emphasis of Matthew's gospel. The son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. And so Jesus Christ, by Matthew's account, portrays Jesus Christ as the perfect son of God. Uh, here's a verse to look at, Matthew 14.33. I'll just read it to you. Matthew 14.33, Jesus has just walked in the water. Peter's just about to drown. And Peter being saved from drowning, the disciples, as they see Peter rescued and come back into the boat, they say this about Jesus Christ. Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And of a truth, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the Messiah of the Hebrew people. Matthew 27, 54, at the crucifixion, the centurion witnessed how Jesus died. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 27, 54. And so you have Matthew's account showing that he is the Messiah. He is the one that the Jews had longed for, the coming king. Mark, Matthew, Mark, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Very short book, very fast-paced book. It, it begins bang and it keeps on going. It begins with him running. It begins with Jesus Christ being the perfect servant that has come and he's active and he would be also the suffering servant who died to ransom us. Mark 10.45 says this, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And that's the theme of Mark. The perfect servant came to serve and gave, uh, gave his life a ransom for many. And so a short book, energetic, totally, I wouldn't say it, uh, I, I wouldn't say it disrespectfully, totally on energy drink. Totally on the go. No sleep, no rest, just go 24-7. That seems like to be the account of Mark. And then we have Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke writes with a certain viewpoint, from a certain viewpoint, as does Matthew and Mark. And so, for the life of Christ, Luke writes as Jesus being the perfect man. The perfect man. Come to Acts chapter 1. chapter 1 <clears throat> chapter 1 and verse number 1 the former treatise have I made O Theophilus the book of Luke of all that Jesus began both to do and teach all right, Dr. Luke, a medical, a medical doctor, an MD. He says, of all, I've written of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Did he write of all that Jesus began to do and teach? Well, John's, John's gospel says, if all the books were filled, we could not fill up all the things that Jesus did. But Mark, uh, Luke here says, I wrote about the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So in his medical, precise, careful of detail mind, he writes about in his gospel what Jesus Christ did and what he taught. And so uh, he writes as a Gentile, Luke does. He shows that Jesus Christ was compassionate toward Gentiles, toward Samaritans, and uh, toward women children, tax collectors, sinners, and other outcasts of Israel. 
Luke writes emphasizing those things. As a matter of fact, Luke mentions more women than any other gospel writer. Interesting, isn't it? Well, let's come to John. Uh, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the four men who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the life of Christ on earth. John chapter, well, John. Uh, John writes for a specific reason. I already gave you the answer as we begin uh, the study today. John 20, 31. He wrote that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Uh, John writes for the whole world. Matthew wrote to show the Jews he is the Messiah. Mark wrote he's a perfect servant. Luke wrote he's a perfect man. John wrote about Jesus he is the perfect savior of the whole world, not just the Hebrews, but the whole world. And so you have this overarching emphasis by each writer about certain aspects of Jesus Christ's life on earth and his ministry. Now, uh, something else about John. Uh, John, uh, John says that Jesus Christ is the word manifest in the flesh, John chapter one, verse one and verse 14. He's the only begotten son of God. Let's look at those two key verses. They are so important. They're so plain, we dare not forget what it says. John chapter 1. John writes to prove that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. John 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, um, the study is about the life of Christ on earth, not so much about the theology of who Jesus Christ is, but it does say right here in verse number one that Jesus Christ is eternal, as I already mentioned, and that he is the word in eternity, and that he was with God. So that means there's more than one person in eternity. But how can that be? Because Isaiah says there's only one God, and before me there's no God formed, neither after me. So you read Isaiah 40 through 44, uh, in that portion you find great statements about the nature of God. Well, how can this be? This must mean something else then that the Bible has revealed to us in this verse. This one simple verse, it must mean that there is a Godhead where the Word is God and the Father is God. doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but this is a reflective verse about the, the nature of God. There's a, there's, a, there's a triune being called the Holy Trinity or the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in power, separate in His offices, distinct in His personality but one God only. All right, look at verse 14. The Word is made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bear witness of Him. All right, let's stop there. And so John's Gospel is written to portray Jesus Christ as the Son of God for the whole world, the Savior of the world. And in John's Gospel, I've got to tell you this, he mentions seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. And those I am statements are often preached about uh, uh, by many uh, uh, preachers of the gospel because it is so significant and so important as to why he came and who he is to the world and why he came to, to, to save the world. And so uh, seven I am statements, uh, I'll give them to you right now if you want to write them down. All right, ready, set, go. John six thirty five. John eight twelve. John 9, 5, John 10, 7, 11, 14, John 11, 25, John 14, 
6. John 15, 1. So look him up sometime and get a blessing from those verses. Uh, he also, in John's gospel, he reviewed Jesus Christ on earth by seven hard statements. Seven statements that caused the Jews to say, what? Are you kidding me? No way. That was the reaction that they received, he received when he said these seven statements. Hard sayings. Uh, John 2, verses 1 through 11. John 4, verses 43 through 54. John 5, verses 1 through 15. John 6, verses 1 through 14. And then verses 16 through 21. And then write down John 9, verses 1 through 12. And then John 11, verses 1 through 44. So those are some of the important things and big picture things of the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John write about the life of Christ on earth. Now all four men record the same things. Here's what they recorded, all four of them. They recorded John the Baptist coming to be the forerunner of Christ. They record the feeding of the 5,000. They record Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They record the Last Supper, all four of them do. And the other thing in common among all four writers is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record those basic facts about Jesus' life. Now, uh, Matthew and Luke, interestingly, Matthew and Luke, write about Jesus' birth, has a very short narrative about his childhood, and they focus on Jesus' life, especially as an adult. Not much is given about his youth, mostly about when he was an adult. So Luke 3, 23 tells us this. Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And so that's the emphasis of the Gospels. As an adult, therefore, a little bit about his youth and uh, childhood. Now, uh, also, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they mentioned the Passover feast just one time. There's something crawling my glasses. Got it. I blew him away. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, uh, they mentioned the Passover just one time. And so that has led people to think, oh, the life of Christ was only short, just one year. But John's gospel records um, more than that. He records three Passovers. And that leads people to think that his ministry was at least three years. Interesting thing there. Uh, John's Gospel records many of Jesus' sayings and teachings that Matthew, Mark, Luke did not record. Now think of that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record similar things. John records things that these three do not record. So these three writers that have some harmony to what they record about Jesus' events and his sayings, they call that the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic. <coughs> That word has reference to something similar, something similar. 
So you find similarities in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you come to John, he writes about different things about Jesus Christ. So that's interesting to know. Now, it doesn't mean that they contradict. It doesn't mean John says things that just because what John says, Matthew, Mark, Luke does not say, it doesn't mean that John is off the wall. It just means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have um, certain viewpoints as they observe Christ and what he said and what he did. And so they record that. And then John sees things from a different viewpoint. It doesn't mean anything except you got to work with them together, look at them together, read them together in this context to get the whole picture of Jesus Christ's life on earth. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Uh, and so they call the synoptic gospels viewed together with the similarities and differences. Yet all of them portray one view of Jesus Christ. So four gospels together must be studied. Just don't take Matthew's account. Just don't take Luke's account. Just don't take John's account. They all give you truth about his life on earth, but you got to take them together to get the whole picture. And so uh, sometimes a secular historian will write about Jesus Christ. Sometimes they'll say something about what Jesus did as a child. They'll speculate about here's where he went, here's what he did. He went fishing on a Sunday because he was past Sabbath to his fish. He liked to catch tilapia. You find all kind of anecdotal stuff like that. You say, well, that, uh, well that's interesting. Well, all kind of people can write books. Uh, uh, they're all guessing. They're all supposing. They're all giving their opinion about things. They find some archaeological things. Oh, Jesus. And he, okay, that may be so. However, what do you do to get to the real fact of the matter? You don't depend upon non-biblical statements to create a portrait of Jesus Christ on earth. No, you, you say, okay, they may supplement what the Bible says. They may support what the Bible says. But the Bible itself, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John themselves, they tell you the facts about what Jesus did on earth. Okay, that's what you go by. And a lot of people may not uh, write things to contradict what the Matthew, Mark, Luke authors, uh, John, wrote. They, they think they've discovered something since the writing of the Gospels. And so, you know, uh, I wouldn't discount them. I just wouldn't call them scripture. I would just say the Bible says, and we go by what Mark says rather than what some foreign writer says about anything. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, now, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus live? How did he live? Well, I don't know. But the only way I'll know is by what the Gospels say about how he lived. Come to Matthew 21. If you produced a movie about how Jesus lived, you'd have to go to a source, wouldn't you? You wouldn't just depend upon some scholar or some university professor or someone who had a dream or revelation or some words spoken to them. No, you'd go to a written document. And the written documents are, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so how did Jesus live? Matthew 21 gives us insight as to how Jesus lived on earth. Matthew 21, and verse number, let's go to verse number 18. Now in the morning, as she returned into the city, he, he hungered. Now isn't that encouraging? He hungered. Why is that encouraging? Well, it's because it shows that Jesus Christ, as a man in the flesh, had normal physical appetites. He hungered. If you're up all night and you're doing something, working, or just up all night, wouldn't you tend to get hungry? If you were sleeping and you got up, wouldn't you want to break the fast? Of course you would. Now, teenagers like to break the fast all the time. But uh, 
You ever hear a kid say, I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse. Well, sorry, no horses in Hawaii. I'm so hungry, I can eat a manaberg. Oh, that's pretty disgusting. I'm so hungry, I can eat a kilo pig. Oh, the word pig just is not so appetizing, but kilo pork is. I'm sorry, I could eat steak medium rare. Medium rare. Oh, that's, you're pretty hungry then. All right, so uh, Jesus Christ from this verse, his life on earth, it shows that he was normal. He was normal. He hungered. Uh, he one time stopped in John 4 at Jacob's well, and he was wearied in his journey. He sat thus on the well because he was tired physically. Now, isn't that encouraging that Jesus Christ got tired physically? That he hungered and then he asked for some water to drink he got thirsty all those things indicate that jesus christ as god in the flesh the flesh part of him he had normal need for sleep for food for water for rest now if he the son of god needed that it's kind of interesting how we mere mortals need that as well well you know people get married they say oh we, do, we don't have any money to, to be married, support each other. Oh, really? So how are you going to support uh, your wife? Here's a guy talking to a father, perhaps his father-in-law, future father-in-law. I want to marry a daughter. And he asks basic questions. And usually, when a father asks basic questions, it's because he wants the guy to know that he expects him, the guy, to take care of his daughter. I mean, he took care of his daughter for 18 plus years, and now you're going to turn over to you? Well, you better prove to me that you can support my daughter. Okay? And so if the dad's not satisfied, then it ain't going to happen. It shouldn't happen. But um, so he says, well, no, uh, I don't have much money. Do you have any job? No. Have you ever worked a job? No. How old are you? You're 19? You're 20? You never had a job of any kind? You ever cut grass? No. You ever, you ever weed back? What's that? You ever wash a car? I've driven a car. Have you ever washed a car? Have you ever changed the oil of a car? Have you ever washed dishes? Have you ever cooked anything? I use the microwave. No, but have you ever cooked anything? You got any blisters on your hands? Have you ever done anything? Well, no, but, but I love her. I love your daughter. Well, that's good that you love my daughter. Well, how are you going to support her? Well, um, I have a little bit in the savings account. How much do you have? These are nosy questions. These are probing questions. How much do you have in your savings account? Oh, I got a lot. Well, how much is a lot? See, the guy gives all the general statements. The father wants to know specific things. How much do you have in your savings account? Oh, well, um, uh, oh, by the way, since you don't work, how'd you get the money in your savings account? Interesting, huh? Well, uh, I got uh, $500. Well, that's a lot. Can you pay rent on that? Well, I haven't thought about that. Okay, uh, if you rent a place, can you pay the deposit? What's that? Okay, we have some problems over here, Houston. And uh, he finally says this to the father-in-law, future father-in-law. He says, if you ever call him, sir, he says, sir, I know it doesn't look good, but we're going to live on love. <laughs> we're going to live on love. Honey, do you love him? Oh, I love him. And you love her? I love her with all my heart. So you love her with all your heart, okay. But you have no money, you have no savings, you have no job. And you're gonna live together? Yes. He says, 
I don't think so. You live on love. No, feelings change. And so that has something to do with something over here. Uh, Jesus Christ was normal, had to eat, and uh, had to drink, had to sleep, had to rest. A very normal man in the flesh, yet still the Son of God. Just like us, we have certain needs too that um, we ask God to fulfill those needs, to meet those needs, and God does. Uh, I think it's kind of called, when you pray, give us this day our daily, our daily, because we need it daily. We need to have normal things to, to survive, to live, to thrive, all these kind of things. And so Jesus Christ was a man that was normal in that sense, yet still the Son of God. Now, um, where did he live? Where did he live? Well, Matthew and Luke says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is true. Matthew 2.1 and Luke 2 says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's a common truth about him. Uh, he and his parents, Joseph and Mary, lived in Egypt for a few years. Matthew 2 tells us that. They fled to Egypt. And then after Herod died, they returned to Israel, lived in a city called Nazareth, Matthew 2, 23, 23, lived in the city of Nazareth. Well, Luke also gives us information about where they lived, where he lived. Uh, in Luke 2, 51, uh, he continued to live with his parents as a young man uh, in childhood for 12 years, and that was in Nazareth. Now, later on, sometimes later on, there's a big gap. There's a big period of silence after you find that he was in the temple away from his parents and they looked for him, there was all word about him. And so they reunited and then they went back uh, to Nazareth. But then sometime afterwards, sometime years afterwards, he made his headquarters in another town called Capernaum. Capernaum. You find that in John 2, 12, 4, 46, John 6, 17, and 24. So those references tell us that he was using Capernaum as his home as an adult and so this is a brief summary about the life of Christ on earth now his early years his young his young years not much said about it but um, other than the birth of, of Christ Mary Joseph the angels the shepherds the wise men the dedication of Christ and his youth very limited uh, statements about that but uh, then you have the preparation for his ministry the preparation for his ministry uh, that'll be about some say about 8029. All right, preparation for his ministry. Uh, the Gospels record the coming of John the Baptist. The coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus is baptized, uh, he's tempted, and then Jesus calls a few of his first disciples. So that's about his preparation for his public ministry. So before he hit 30, he had no public ministry. Before he hit age 30, he was in silence. Before he hit age 30, he was in obscurity. Little bit about, little bit about his youth, one up to 12 years old, and then nothing until he's 30. So there's a big gap there. It's a big gap there. So from 12 to 30, open to guessing, open to speculation what he did. Now people have written books and say, okay, here's what we found, here did these things. It's really just guessing, speculation. Uh, don't put much stock into that because if God wanted you to have what he did when he was 18, when he was 25, he would have said something about that perhaps. But there's nothing there. Therefore, we just leave it alone and say, okay, if it's important, 
Uh, if God showed me something, okay, from the Bible, fine. But if not, it's okay. We know something about him when he's 30. When he's 30, he begins his public ministry, which is to tell you that there's a lot of preparation before he begins his public ministry. Sometimes people want to get to the ministry so fast that they forget the fact that they have to be in obscurity. They have to be in a period of preparation before they can actually do something in public. But you know, young people are very um, energetic and uh, optimistic. Idealistic really is the right word. And they think they can do everything because they've been to one-year Bible school. Uh, and I don't think so. Uh, because they had training in a trade school for one year, they think they can fix everything. I don't think so. They have to have preparation. They have to have time to let it sink into their brains and get their hands working and exercising and using what they've learned. And then they may be ready to go and own, open their own business. You know, the middle school, first year medical school, you, you gotta have a what, a residency? Why? You gotta have some training under the eyes of more senior doctors. Don't you like good doctors? Good doctors are necessary, good nurses are necessary. They're very helpful. And you don't want some nurse just out of school, uh, you know, fixing you up or trying to without her having some experience. So you got head knowledge, then you have practical knowledge too. You gotta have both in place. Jesus Christ went through a period of obscurity, of silence before he began his public ministry. Not that he was in fear, not that he had to have maturity, not that he had to be trained. It's just that's how the Bible reveals his life on earth. Okay? So, a uh, little bit known about his youth. That's okay. Um, let's see, where am I here? Where did he live? Early years, preparation for ministry. Uh, his early ministry began in Cana of Galilee. Remember what happened there? The Cana of Galilee. What is his first miracle? Turn water into wine at a wedding. This speculation about that wine matter. Some say it was fermented drink, some say it was grape juice. I lean on the grape juice side. Uh, good reason for that, but that's for another day. And so his first ministry, his first miracle was at a wedding, something that was a celebration. And so he also did something else in his early part of his ministry. He went to the temple, and you're not going to believe this, but Jesus, one of the first things he did in his public ministry. He went to the temple, he looked around, didn't like what he saw, and he cleaned house. What did he see that didn't like? He saw the money changers cheating the people. Those who came from other parts of the world and from other areas for uh, festivals and feast days, he saw the abuse of changing money, giving them the wrong change and overcharging for animals. Those who came there without animals, they buy an animal and he, they would charge, you know, they would jack up the price. Scalpers, if you go to a football game, you don't have a ticket, there's all these people around who bought a ticket legitimately and they know you want to get a ticket but it's sold out, but they got a ticket which means they have a seat and they're going to charge you higher than what they bought it for to make a profit. So if a ticket costs a thousand, no, not a thousand, if a ticket for a football game costs you $500, it's a big game, they're going to charge you a thousand dollars, they know that you're desperate, you want to see the game, I got tickets for you, I got tickets for you, really? what, what kind of seat do you have right here? 50 yard line, 10 rows up. Wow, that's choice. How much you want for this? And they give them a high price, they'll buy them. They're called scalpers. Make a lot of money that way. That's a good gig to have, be a scalper. All right, so uh, he saw people scalping in the temple. And so he got mad. He knocked over the tables. He got a, a rope, made knots out of it, and began to whip the people. Now, that's really not Jesus, the nice, gentle, loving Savior, is it? But that's what the Bible reveals about him. It was justified. So you gotta be careful when you read the Gospels about his life, that you don't take one part of it and try to mimic that because you see it there because it appears to you. Some people's personality are like that. They're very 
put up your dukes real quick like Jesus did that. Yes, but they tend to do that a lot. They tend to forget other things too. They just focus on what appeals to them. You gotta be careful about that. Then you have people that focus on how Jesus was so forgiving to the woman caught in adultery in the very act and he forgave her and go and sin no more. And people say, well, see, and so I'm going to forgive everybody. People can rob me. They can steal from me. They can do all kinds of bad things to me. I'm just going to forgive them blind because Jesus did too. You got to be careful of both extremes. Okay? Uh, restitution is a good thing. The Bible talks about that in the book of Exodus. And it's a good practice to give restitution. Pay back fourfold or twofold for what you've defrauded another man of. And so that will help that man to be careful next time not to be so tempted to steal from somebody else. But if you just forgive somebody, sometimes they just say, oh, yeah, well, not a big deal. They're going to forgive me. Yeah, these Christians are forgiving. I can I can cheat to them. I can lie. I can say, you know, uh, I need to have rent in my, my apartment. I need half. I got half now. I got old tomorrow. I need half. I need only $800. And uh, I go to the churches. People call and they say, um, we, we need some money for uh, medicine for my sick kids. They don't do it too much anymore. But they used to call and say, uh, I, I'm due in rent. I got a, a day to go. I just need $600. You know, and then you ask them some questions. What's your full name? Uh, what's your address? Hesitate, and uh, etc. The more you ask, the more you realize this guy's just trying to get money out of the church. And so they say, well, well, churches are easy targets because they're so kind and compassionate. You gotta be careful about those kind of things too. Balance, balance. So Jesus Christ went to the temple in the early parts of his ministry, cleaned it out. Then he met Nicodemus in John chapter three. Met Nicodemus, that famous encounter up on a rooftop in the night, and then. Um, you find other things going on in his early ministry in Galilee. In Galilee, uh, met a Samaritan woman at a well, and there he said he was the source of living water. He, he would call his 12 disciples, he would heal people, and he would call himself God. And so that's the early parts of his ministry in Galilee. And then later on, you find that Jesus Christ went to a mountain and he taught. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've all read them. You've all read them in Matthew. From the Beatitudes, uh, he talked about marriage, divorce, the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, judging others, a road that's narrow and wide, uh, gates, and the House on the Rock. All those things are found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, early parts of his ministry. All right? Uh, then he goes to Galilee where he heals a centurion's uh, servant. Uh, John the Baptist has doubts about who Jesus is. John sends disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really who you say you are? Well, who wants to know? Well, John wants to know. John's not sure about who you are. John the Baptist himself had doubts about who Jesus Christ was. One was waiting in jail to be beheaded. Uh, the Pharisees rejected Christ then in Galilee. And Jesus teaches kingdom parables, and then he calms the sea. So these are the things that are happening in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then as we move on into this quick survey about his life on earth and his ministry, uh, he goes outside of Galilee, and then Peter confessed that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? Okay. So Peter, he confirms his confidence in Christ and who he is. Then in Galilee... Also, the galley, Jesus feeds 5,000 and 4,000. He walks in the water and does many, many, many miracles. Now, all the miracles are recorded because John said that. And uh, so he must have done a lot of miracles in uh, and around Galilee. 
Then in Galilee, again, uh, he teaches about who is the greatest. Those who humble themselves and are servants are the greatest, not those who seek authority and have power. And then Jesus gives something very common, uh, very, very moving. The parable of the lost sheep in John. The parable of the lost sheep. He talks about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Forgiveness, 70 times 70. Oh, that's good. And Jesus' own brothers, stepbrothers, reject him. And so they don't believe in him. He goes to Judea. Goes to Judea. Ministers in Judea as an adult. And he talks about his relationship with his father. He says he's again the living water. He says to Mary and Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He raises Lazarus. He says he's the good shepherd and many other parables that he gave. So briefly, that's about his life. And then he goes to Perea in early AD 33. So coming up to the end of his life, uh, he taught many parables again. He talks about increasing your faith, uh, signs of the second coming, the rich young ruler. Here are some verses. I have verses for all of these points. And I didn't give them to you because I thought you might get uh, Harpo Tunnel writing these down. But I'll give you some here. Matthew 19, 1 through 20. Mark 10, 1 through 52. Luke 13, 22. Luke 19, and John 11. Then we come to the last days of his life on earth. And then next Sunday, I'll come back and cover some of these other areas in a little bit more detail. Last days of his ministry and life on earth, his crucifixion leading up to it. Uh, Christ returns to Jerusalem, uh, where he is crucified, and then he is resurrected on the first day of the week. And so those references, I'll give that to you when we come to that point. So that is an overview about the life of Christ on earth. Now, what, how could you summarize today about his life? What would, what would you put in a sentence or two about how, you could, how would you summarize his life on earth? Or is there a certain word you could use to summarize his life on earth? I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, 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 I'll light the fuse and then hope you can lead it to an explosion. Um, purpose would be a key word. The life of Christ, purpose. Anything else that would be a key word about his life, purpose. How about plan? It was planned. How about providence? Any other key word you might think about? Oh. What? Oh. A full life. A full life. Dedicated life. Sacrificial life. Okay, those are some key words. What about a key sentence to, to, to describe? Hey, what was the life of Christ like on earth? What would you say to someone in a sentence or two? He was obedient to his father's will. Obedient to his father's will. He was an obedient son. Another sentence. The son of God on earth was very human, very human. Ate, drank, slept, slept uh, got angry, had emotions and feelings. He was not a robot. By the way, you know the difference between a robot and a human is? 
not a joke. A human has something about how they perceive and decide things and they make a decision and they make, there's an action. A robot, everything is programmed and it only can do what it's been programmed to do. I saw a robot playing uh, a professional ping pong player. That robot could match every move that that professional player, that human did. It was like, you could not beat the robot. Every possible move that you could make, he could counter it. And it finally ended with this. The guy slammed the ball and the robot just did this. Returned like that without even just, and it was a slam to the other side. It was like awesome. He was a right-hander, but I couldn't do right-hand, so like that. Now, but there are there are things that that you you do because you feel, you sense, you, your emotions, your your heart, your mind, everything goes together, and you you do something, you don't do something. A robot cannot do that because it's not programmed like that. But they're saying one day robots are going to act like real humans, and they can make their own decision, and they can go against what's programmed in them. That's scary. I saw one where a robot was loading boxes maybe like somewhere uh, UPS like that off a conveyor belt like that and then one time it was just like you don't even think about it and then the thing just got crazy and they grabbed the guy through him <laughs> it was like the thing went crazy like he got mad or something uh, what was that all about I don't know but the idea now is that robots can go off off kilter and do things that's not programmed uh, maybe so I don't know. by the way uh, question to ask you what does computers, robotics, I, uh, intelligent, I, intelligent design, or what, AI. not intelligent, design, AI, have to do with the Antichrist? Anything? Mm -hmm. Well, artificial intelligence have a role to play in the tribulation. Now, who could have known that 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or half a century ago? It's beyond the scope of our imagination. But now, perhaps a lot of things in the tribulation will involve AI and faking reality and things. I still take the Bible literally that things are, as they say, fire means fire, fire from heaven, devouring and fire on the ground. I, I still take it literally, but uh, I do wonder, I'm just wondering out loud about the two witnesses that are killed. Aren't they beheaded in the tribulation? Don't they come to life? So, something to think about. Nowadays, the unbelievable is reality. I'm not saying anything about that except I'm just thinking out loud. Okay? All right, let's take a break and then um, we'll come back at 1045.